Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that alien flower, Jeff Goad. <laughs> uh, I'm poisonous to most people. <laughs> but not to protagonists. Not to protagonists, <laughs> indeed. And this week, we're very honored to be joined by Moss Bosch, educator, tabletop game designer, and co-host of the podcast, Queerly Yours. Uh, Moss's work can be found on HIO with This Party Sucks. And also at, uh, at Beating the Binary on HIO and also on TikTok at Beating the Binary. Hello, Moss. Hello. Thank you both so much for having me here. I am really excited to get to talk about this uh, weird, lovely, dramatic book and all the protagonist energy and all the gender um, and all the gradually unfolding world building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, all of and, the above. And mm-hmm. self-construction, right? And there's a lot of self-construction going on in here. So much. Yeah. Lots of lots of characters figuring out who they who they are and why and how they fit into the world and how big mm-hmm. and weird the world is and how they mm-hmm. don't really know a lot about it and it's frightening. Right. right. Um, so speaking of frightening, how about an origin story, Moss? How did you get into gaming? Ooh, a spooky origin story for a recording <laughs> done in October that probably isn't released in October. It's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. It's one of those things where I feel like for a lot of folks, especially in um, like indie tabletop scenes, I now look back and think of a lot of things in my life as having been gaming that I wouldn't have described as gaming at the time. Uh, you know, like like all children, I did lots of creative, you know, story play and world building when I was very small. The the worlds I and my cousins built together when we were very small would honestly have fit in pretty well uh, with this kind of book. You know, mm-hmm. we made dramatic, multi-year-long storytelling plot lines together where we were gods of our own universes and our favorite stuffed animals were our demigods and champions. And they went on long adventures and battled evil and, you know, were tortured and loved and lost and saved their friends and whatnot. The most sort of official, like, getting into gaming formats for myself that really happened kind of came out of the fact that I was super into webcomics. My parents were uh, indie comic collectors during the 80s, and then they had me in the 90s and started having way less disposable income. But they raised me with this lovely, weird comic collection of lots of small press stuff. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, I started looking for more comics at the public library and out in the world. And that led me to find, I think one of the first ones that I found in the library that led me to find out what webcomics were was Girl Genius, because mm-hmm, there sure. were lots Self-folio. of volumes of that yeah. in the library. And then they also had a URL on the back cover. And then that sent me down a big, beautiful rabbit hole. Right, and like one of the things folio. that kickstarted me getting into tabletop games, I'm I'm one of the the weirdos who did, I didn't come in through D&D. I was aware of D&D and I had cousins who played it when I was very small, but I wasn't quote unquote playing it. I was very small and just hanging out with them. So I go, what are you doing? And they go, we're playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I go, can I be a dragon? And they go, yes. So I would run around the table <laughs> pretending to be a dragon and they would semi-ironically incorporate me into plot um, as they played a mildly more formal game system. But uh, I found that a couple of webcomic artists whose work that I liked were going to be guests on a podcast called the One Shot Podcast, where they were going to play this, like, I think three-player romance game uh, that they set in, you know, a dramatic, like, young young magic user kind of setting. And I listened to that episode and kind of fell in love with that whole premise and format. 
And then I started devouring the episode archive of the One Shot podcast, which was a really, really amazing, just quick fire intro to the fact that there were a whole bunch of different role playing game systems out there mm-hmm. designed to do very, very different and specific things. And so that got me into Avery Alder's stuff. I uh, The first game I ever facilitated for other people was Dream Askew back mm-hmm. in its early online PDF pre-refinement and official print publishing iterations. Right. Now, you'd mentioned that you'd really worked, you know, come in through the, well, I won't call it the side door, but not, you know, not the <laughs> D&D, you know, the Not the most row. marketed door. <laughs> right. Um, so... Uh, and obviously it's very you talked about you know working in different idioms that really do you sometimes feel like okay i just want vanilla and then it's i don't know what that is if it's D &D for you or something else (laughs) in that case uh it's fun that's actually a thing that's come up for me a little bit uh during the pandemic and figuring out what are good games to play online with people because a lot of the games that i've traditionally played in person are high emotional intensity games Mm mm-hmm um, that may be like very socially or emotionally intimate, like Starcrossed, you know, where it's two of you in front of a Jenga tower, um, you know, representing your unrequ- your like unexpressed love that you're not sure how to voice and that you may never voice. Um, and even games like Fiasco, which can be very wacky and chaotic, but they're still Fiasco is built to try and play out kind of like a Coen Brothers movie. So your characters may dramatically murder each other or betray each other or run off with. Uh, the MacGuffin item that you've all been trying to search for during a weird heist. And so those games are really fun, but they take a they take a lot of emotional prep work and balancing and debrief sometimes. And so for the past couple of years, I haven't wanted to play those as much. And uh, but I've made even more game friends online. And uh, so shout out to my friend, Ben, who's also a fan of your podcast and was hyped when I told him I was going to be on this. He's been my window into OSR. Uh Um, And so I've played a lot more OSR stuff this past year, especially Nave, Mm -hmm. um, because I'm still totally happy to do a, you know, let's just be adventurers who go wander through a cave and stab things. I just prefer to do that with people that I trust to be like conceptually thoughtful with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense and not like play into a bunch of tropes that are frankly going to feel very gross to me and to a lot of people I care about yeah and also I kind of like I like the OSR element a thing that I find overlaps between that old school revival slash renaissance philosophy and a lot of the very emotionally intense uh, like diceless GMless games that I like is that both of them often you go in with a knowledge that your character could die horribly very suddenly and that that would be fine and not a failure of the game and might in fact be very cool plot generation. Yeah. Um, and so in that way, that felt like a very smooth transition, but OSR doesn't ask you to imagine that your character might die horribly because you're playing, say, a game like Downfall, where the whole plot is based around a civilization crumbling. They might just die horribly because a spike fell on them. Right. Um, life happens. And that's, yeah, and it's like, oh, life happens, and then we'll use the really cool online resources people have built for Nave to quick re-roll a new hapless adventurer who just needs some quick cash, who's going to shrug and pick up their sword and take this next job. And that's more of the pace that I've liked lately. So if I was going to call something, quote-unquote, vanilla for me i think uh shout out to nave that's been a really nice energy for me <laughs> now uh you talked about uh, i guess maybe your some of your formative reading was you know alternative comics mm-hmm. uh, what is your sort of background in sort of fantasy and science fiction literature in terms of what what appeals to you or what what really yeah, sort of shaped um, your readings neil gaiman was definitely big 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 in my childhood uh mm-hmm. both because my parents had all the issues of sandman sure. um and things so that sort of like fantasy and horror element 
was big. I was also just a massive bookworm of a kid. I read basically anything I could find in the library. So I read a lot of Garth Nix. That was a really fun, cool magic system kind of element that I got into. I But I would read almost anything that I could find, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, realism, or otherwise. And I'd go through phases. Like late elementary school, I was just ghost stories all the time. And then I did world folklore for a while. And then middle school was a lot of the sort of the historical stories that are a kid, just kind of like you, mm-hmm. um, you know, so lots of things like, oh, it's like a medieval girl who's a midwife's apprentice and all of her trials and tribulations and things, which come to think of it would probably make a really cool solo game or mm-hmm. like small scale uh, game premise, um, like I- being being a young apprentice in like a physically intense right. job. Right. A baker, um, a tanner, something crazy. Yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah. Like, I feel like you could do some fun stuff with that. So that was a lot of my jam. And then um, more in like young adult phases, I read some Ursula Le Guin when I was a kid and couldn't stand it. The pacing didn't gel with me at all. It felt way too slow paced and I got super bored. Came back to her stuff in college. Love it. Love, mm. love, love it. Um, and not just because of the gender stuff, though, when I came out as genderqueer to my parents, my dad's response was to buy me a copy of The Left Hand of Darkness. There you go. Um, because that was his closest conceptual sense of how to talk and think about like a non-binary understanding of gender was this sci-fi story um, where the main character is essentially a diplomat slash semi-cultural anthropologist having to navigate a world that does not have gender norms in the way that um, like his home communities do. And now I, I love Le Guin. And she definitely influences how I think about like world building and storytelling, especially because um, she's just a great person. If you want to think about massive sci-fi epics and their cultural and structural implications, uh, and because you'll be glad to hear that the next episode we're doing is on a wizard of Earthsea. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I, I love Earthsea. I also, I love her Hainish cycle books, the ones that are yeah. the, the left hand of darkness and all its associated arcs. And then also I have a soft spot for always coming home which is, um, I think, one of her less commonly read ones, but it's it's like a f- imagined far future anthropology of a society that could exist in the future in what is now the West Coast, like Northern California region of the U.S., after our societies have all long crumbled and, you know, been swallowed in nuclear fallout and all of that, and people have built something new and smaller and more gently paced. And so she writes it as though it's like a collection of anthropological documents of someone from our time who's managed somehow to flash far forward into the future to hang out with their descendants and explore that world. And it's just some of the tastiest, most tender world building I've ever read. And I think about her a lot (laughs) when I think about how to write epic and interesting stories that don't necessarily have things like the threat of war or massive scale governments. Mm -hmm. Because Always Coming Home is a world where it's lots of small enclaves and communities that aren't inherently isolated. They do communicate and connect with each other, but like they're they don't have the capacity or the interest or the philosophy that would lead them to go to war with each other mm. and that doesn't mean they can't have conflict or interest or drama in their lives i wonder if she's in uh since you mentioned uh so, so, sorry uh, my digression ashinano the uh manga writer who did um Ooh. the uh kyoto sh- story of a kyoto shopping trip they're all sort of post-apocalyptic but very gentle um mm. so that's one about this cafe that's run by an android on like the coast of japan 
um, after some sort of apocalypse and the human race is slowly dying out. Oh, I think I've heard of that now that you described the premise. Right. I didn't remember the author name, but I and, think someone yeah, else has recommended that yeah, to me. Yeah, I, I, know. I think they're only on web, you know, web scanlations. And there's another mm-hmm. one where like everything is giant except for the people. So there's plants that are like 3,000 feet high and pe- <laughs> wow. the, the world's so much bigger, but so people can only fly around on this Piper Cub. I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember the name of the title that, but that might be an indirect uh, Le Guin influence. Nice. Um, so, uh, so Le Guin, definitely we should be looking at Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. and uh, Garth Nix. Um, yep. And yeah, Gaiman, I have complicated feelings about at yeah. times. He can be very sure. frustrating as a dude, yeah. but I can't deny that he was formative, you know? Right, right. So terrific. Uh, all right. Yeah. So we should start moving over into discussing this week's book, which yeah. is Gene Wolfe's The Shadow of the Torturer. Such um, a name. Indeed. Uh, so uh, as we get started, uh, let's talk about what editions we're working from. Uh, I'm working with the ebook, which includes also Claw the Conciliator. What, what copy are you working with there, Moss? I'm working with a janky ebook that I found on the internet. I then went and bought a better ebook, but I'd already highlighted the first one I found. So that's the one I'm looking at now. Uh, so, But I think it is like the earliest edition. It's got the cover that looks like it's from the like early printings where it's got the the figure in the dramatic robe standing on the sort of uh spirally looking um like iron maybe iron wrought iron like platform (laughs) moss i think you and i are working for the same jinky ebook oh nice It's got that great Don Mates cover, but like, yeah. but on my jinky ebook, it's like really small and kind uh, of pixelated. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the actual cover on the on the paperback is gorgeous. Or the hardcover. Sh- it looks yeah. great. I've looked at the picture in more detail online. It's quite an image. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have a high Gaxian word of the week, week, but Moss, do you have a good candidate? There's there's a sentence that comes up when the protagonist is talking about one of like, his old instructors, and he says he mispronounced quite common words: urticate, salpinks. Bordereau. I had to look up all of those. Um, Urticate is to cause a stinging or prickling sensation like that given by a nettle. Um, Salpinx uh, was a trumpet-like instrument in ancient Greece. And Bordereau, the internet wasn't even sure on. I think it means something like a slip or an undergarment in French, maybe. And in English, it means something to do with insurance systems. So I'm not sure how he meant us to be interpreting that one. Amazing. I picked a a far more mundane word, but I feel it's very applicable to D&D. So Mm -hmm. it is. Oubliette. Oubliette, which is basically a secret dungeon with access only through the trap door and a ceiling. And it's from the word French, which basically means uh, oublier, which means to be forgotten. You're tossed into these things and are completely forgotten. So my hijacking word for this week is oubliette. Love it. Very thematic to this story, too. Lots of concepts about what's known about and what's forgotten and who's left Mm -hmm. to languish in various places or sent away. Right. So it sounds like you have uh, really uh, thought about this book a lot. So, Moss, what is your what is your uh, impression of this book, both, uh, you know, from the story point of view and the broader implications of it? I liked it a lot. I will say one thing that was kind of funny for me as I was reading it. I read it without any initial knowledge that it was part of an ongoing series. I didn't realize that until I had finished it. And so as I was reading it initially, there's all these little allusions to the fact that um, Severian, the protagonist, is writing this from the future in his life when he's like taken on a major seat of political power and authority and that he's got this amazing photographic memory that's allowing him to reflect on and record his life in relative detail from his childhood. And so he'll occasionally have these little sides of like, 
you know, and that was one of the things that led me down to the path to where I am now, like holding the crown or like this would be one of the only time, the only time that I ever, you know, hid my identity as I traveled. And these these little asides that tell you there's a bunch more plot that's going to happen. And so initially I was like, oh, cool. At some point there was going like, to be a weird This wouldn't be the first time that I had to yeah, do this exactly. thing. And, yeah. uh, he does these little asides that remind you that he's writing reflectively from the future. And so initially I was like, oh, cool. At some point there's going to be some wild ass revolution in this book and he's going to end the book on the throne. And then we kept getting closer and closer to the end. And I'm like, he hasn't even left the city yet. And he's like 18 or something. And he has no idea what's And I'm like, oh, it's a series. Oh, this is the setup. Do we leave him at the gate of the city? There's like four or five more books or something. Okay, okay. Now I understand the pacing. I was getting so confused in the last couple chapters because <laughs> I didn't know it was a giant series. Um, so it made a lot more sense once I realized that it was like set up for this massive ongoing arc he's going to have because I feel like the plot as it goes has so many sections in it already mm-hmm, that are yeah. interestingly woven but so much of it I'm curious to see where it goes because there's all kinds of plot hooks that are definitely not concluded in this book. Mm-hmm. We see him grow up have uncomfortable moral and political awakenings, but not the biggest ones, honestly. Like, he's still a torturer professionally and is fine with that, mm-hmm. even though he feels conceptually conflicted about it some of the time. Uh, but we managed to get him to grow up, have some major moral crises, get expelled from his guild, but they can't kill him because that would bring shame to the guild and cause political issues for him. So they're exiling him, but making it look like a job posting. Um, and he does <laughs> technically get a job out of it, uh, and he gets a really cool sword, and then as he leaves the city, several hot women glom onto them, one of them tries to kill him, one becomes his, like, bosom companion, and he accidentally gets a powerful MacGuffin item from a cult dropped into his, like, pocket that he doesn't realize is there until, like, the very end of the book. And then, oh, and also he's gonna be in a traveling theater troupe. It's like, all right, all right, okay. <laughs> and he- he didn't even need to rehearse the part either. I he know, just showed he up just and the arrived. play started. Oh, all right. <laughs> Master of improv. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that um, we do before the show is we sit down with our patrons and we have a conversation with some of them about the book. Mm-hmm. And some of the patrons um, had expressed that it felt like this book was kind of two books. Mm-hmm. How there was first, you know, Severian growing up in the Citadel. Yeah. And then there's Severian out on his own. Totally. And I also felt that way. And what I thought was interesting about the two books, and not everybody agreed with me when I said this, but some very much did, is I felt like Severian in the Citadel, I understood. I I I was in that character's head. I understood his character arc. But once he's out there in the world, it didn't feel like the same person to me anymore. Like I didn't feel that same emotional connection to this person that I had had in the beginning of the book. I know what you mean. And to, to pull in some of the RPG threads of this, if I may, a thing that I was thinking, I was thinking a lot about this book in an RPG context as I was reading it too. I'm like, if I was going to try to run a game in this world or get inspiration from this, what would I do or what would I draw on? And I would say how I would define those two books is that I would say that that first section where you felt like you understood Severian's motivation is the massive, massive backstory that Severian's um, player brought <laughs> to the DM. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then book two is what happened when the GM and the rest of the player characters and, and Severian's player character had to try to collaboratively interact to move through <laughs> a setting together. Yes. Um, 
That totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that. that's, that's how <laughs> that I That is a pitch. great lens through which to view this book. Because the <laughs> big thing that I was thinking about that stood out to me in that second half of the book when Severian like starts just meeting all these people or running into these people or having to deal with people like, oh, no, there's a cult. Like, oh, this woman is wants to sleep with me and also is secretly trying to kill me via her brother. And now I have to kill her brother. But like for work purposes, um, not revenge. That's important. Right. Um, and just all the things that are happening in that section is I felt like a thing that section two was a hilariously fun example of for me was ways to toss PCs together who don't previously know each other and co-entangle them in plot. Like, they literally... Dorcas is pulled out of a lake where she might have been dead and she's lost her memory. <laughs> and then she joins the party, quote-unquote, because she literally knows no one else, owns one dress, and has no memory. She literally tells Severin, she's like, I would have followed you even if you hated me. Like, what What else was I going to do? Um, and that's strong, that's strong collaborative player buy-in. She's like, hey, I want to play someone with amnesia. So, like, I'll just slot into the party whenever. Just have them discover me with amnesia. And the GM's like, yeah, that works. Like, right. well, they'll pull you out of the lake. Um, and also, there was that old man who they were hanging out with for a yeah. little while who was, like, trying to find... And I felt like maybe that player couldn't make that next session. Oh, so they yeah. just, like, he just wasn't there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe he, like, didn't match the vibe, you right. know? Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I know, Jeff, that you were getting some pushback on, the, you know, what your take on the character was. And Moss, you just made me think of it. really reminded me of when you first go to college or in some other new situation. And you're, you're kind of, like, fumbling with your self-presentation mm-hmm. is what Severian is doing, right? He's out yeah. of the, the womb of as weird as his upbringing might be in this guild of torturers. He's out of that now. He's nominally in the world nominally an adult but he doesn't really have any idea what that really means and And he's still super young i forget if they i feel like they probably define how old he is when he leaves i don't remember exactly but he's not old it feels like he's he's in his late teens i think that's supposed to be i was guessing like 16 probably yeah Yeah. i think he's in the 16 to 18 range which may range which makes sense because like he's a i think he's about the same age as dorcas and dorcas is supposed to be 16 or 17 by their rough guess Mm -hmm. um and things and and it's also interesting. I do like that he, in his reflections from the future, uh, as he's writing, does not like, I was a stupid boy. Yeah. I, I did not know a lot. I had some very specific knowledge and skill sets. I did not know a lot about women. I knew almost nothing about the city I lived in, aside from my very specific quarters of it. I walked out and got weird reactions from people because I was dressed in very specific clothing for my very specific job that some people don't quite believe exists. You know, there's like the guards that think he's pulling some kind of weird con. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the guard master, yeah, yeah, has to jump in and be like, you're idiots. Like he literally smells like blood and musty hallways. Like <laughs> yeah. he's not a con artist. Like here, torture one of these guards to show them that you are who you actually are. And he's like, oh, okay. And <laughs> I get both what you mean, Jeff, about it feeling like there's disjointedness between the character. Because I think there is. I think that's a fair reading of it. I think yeah. another reading, and I don't know if this is one that folks took in the uh, the Patreon uh, chat or not, is I think it also plays to what you're saying, Hoy, which is that he's a teenager who's been trained in a very specific and limited environment on how to interact with the world, and now he's left that. And so if he feels disjointed in his behavior, that's probably not the most shocking thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also a weird combo in that he's had a lot of moral and cultural qualms about his background and about being a torturer and what that means. But it is also familiar to him, and that familiarity is comforting him. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like even though he's questioning it, he also in the second half repeatedly uses those skills, in some cases literally professionally, mm-hmm. yeah. at request. Um, yeah. And I think that could be interpreted as 
like a discontinuity or contradiction. And I think that could also be interpreted as a teenager who has not had that much experience yet in having to question authority, mm-hmm. um, being asked to do things that he's trained to do and going, okay, I guess I, I guess I do this now. Um, right. Right. You and, know? and relating this back to us unreliably, even though he professes to have a perfect memory, there's a couple of times when he says, you know, he says, oh, I forgot. And it's like, well, how mm-hmm. can you forget? He has a perfect memory. Right. And then I've been highlighting when that happened in the books, because there are times where he says he had trouble recalling something. I'm like, buddy. <laughs> right. Or sometimes he's like, I remember things perfectly, but sometimes it takes right, me right. a while or like it takes right, me a while to have it recalled. But it's in right. there somewhere. And I'm like, OK, Severian. Right. Right. And then like Dan Alexander pointed out that there was, you know, he does the execution. And he's super professional about it. But then Dorcas is the one who mentions that he actually vomits afterwards, right? Yeah, Dorcas is like, I hope you don't have to do that again for a while. Like, that really messed you up. (laughs) (laughs) But from our perspective, the way he was describing it, it didn't seem that way at all. Yeah. But then it's also interesting that he would include that line from Dorcas. Mm -hmm. What's also, and what, what I also think is interesting about this book are the multiple audiences that this book is theoretically written for. Yeah. Because on one hand, in chapter three, um, Severian says the client was put to question last night. Perhaps some of you heard her. So clearly whoever he's speaking to or whoever he's writing this to are people from within that world. Um, and also people not only from within that world, but possibly from even within the Citadel and mm-hmm. specifically the Torturer's yeah, Tower. Yeah, of his guild, yeah. Exactly. But then we've got this appendix where, where the writer... The author explains to you that this text has been translated for a 21st century audience and that um, that they use Latin in times where like they are using language that um, that the characters don't understand Mm -hmm. in that world. So also it's implied that not only was this book written by Severian for a very specific audience, but somehow this text traveled through time and space into the hands of Gene Wolfe, who is now translating this for all of us to read in yeah. the here and now. So yeah, a, a smidge like the like the thing I was talking about with Le Guin, um, but at a slight more degree removed, because Le Guin wrote it as though she herself, or a sort of conceptual avatar of her, was an anthropologist traveling to the future, whereas Gene Wolfe received this writing of Severian, a narrator of... Uh, interestingly mixed tonality and (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's almost like a joseph smith like like facing the in in the hats uh translating the tablets (laughs) yeah it's a fascinating thing there's also that whole ramble that severian does near the end of the book about the concept of like who he's writing for or the Mm -hmm. the nature of the story and how he asks people to like forgive strangeness in the pacing and if you don't want to read more that's fine and oh i'm gonna recount my dream even though i'm not sure what to make of it because i kind of want to uh, but it's not the most like narratively important dream, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, one of the things that we had definitely discussed was how uh, rich, um, you know, the soil in which uh, Gene Wolfe works. You know, his, his Catholicism, he's uh, very well read. So he's working, he's a uh, strong knowledge of uh, magical realist literature, mm-hmm. GK and a bunch of other areas. Um, so one thing I was not, I don't know that he drew upon, but I kind of think maybe he knew of it's like, you know, maybe time itself, Jeff, is kind of an illusion that all, you know, like that whole, like, uh, you know, time is a flat circle BS from a true detective, but everything is just kind of flattened so that he's talking when he says that that scene that you just mentioned, he's talking to, you know, people who say, oh, maybe you heard her last night. But I don't think he's actually talking to people in that world. I think he's just still talking to us like all those things are happening. We're seeing through time all things at once. 
And so he's still talking to us saying, us, literally, whoever it is. It's like, oh, yeah, so maybe you heard that thing because things just travel and echo through time, right? And it's just like all things are present and all things are past. And are there, there are some implications <laughs> of that within yeah. the world of the story too, right? Like when he visits the librarians, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they have some books from other worlds that are valuable and exciting even though they can't read them. There's like the li- one of the libraries has like a crystal the size of your thumb that contains more knowledge than everything else in the library combined. Yeah. There's a sense that there's all kinds of text. I, I like that gradual unfolding too and that you've got this story that feels very sort of like dark fantasy, torturer's tower. And then you go more and more and you're like, it's a far future something and this planet is maybe Earth. The name is almost Earth. The moon got terraformed a long mm-hmm. time ago. So it looks different now. Maybe the sun is dead, like it exploded, but just it, the light's taking so long to travel that it doesn't seem like the sun is dead yet. Like the that very gets... least it's bloated and bright yeah. red. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like there's a character that says in passing at one point, yeah, like the sun is dead. It does, just doesn't know it yet. Yeah. Um, like we yeah. don't know it yet or something. And things, you know, there's uh, references to names of animals that are extinct in our time. And it's the little note at the end about translation is like Severian seems to act almost as though these are literal revivals of those ancient animals as opposed to wild new genetic amblegams. Right. <laughs> um, right. It's like, oh, okay. So there's like a whole bunch of stuff going on here. Right. There's right. like space travel, possibly interdimensional or time travel or some weird stuff. He goes into that wild greenhouse mm-hmm. yeah. and it's like they're speaking. There's a bunch of people from a different time and place that can kind of see him and kind of not. And all these different layers going on and occasional things that happen to him where it's not clear if that's just his emotional process or if it's some of the transdimensional mm-hmm. stuff of the world, like him seeing his childhood dog and his old master who's sort of like a ghost that's following him and looking after him a little right. bit. And, and, and he sort of toward the end, he talks about whether ghosts remain or don't, you know, it's some kind of soul, that, you know. Yeah. Element. So, so I think that the time is sort of very um, fluid. And as you say, like not all things can perceive through time. Mm-hmm. But supposedly we are, we're, uh, you know, op- op- operating at this other l- level and remove and we can see these things, even if we don't fully understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there's definitely a lot of room for, uh, interp- well, obviously this whole book is just an, one giant active interpretation or reinterpretation. Massively, uh, especially since you're getting this teen protagonist with very specific knowledge and then huge knowledge gaps in other places, who's wandering out into a city that people repeatedly say, is so big and complex that you cannot do an accurate census, even if you try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, it's the size of, you know, a whole country potentially, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it is also, uh, you know, sort of, impl- it's interesting, it's also sort of implied it's, it's South America in the very, very far future because mm-hmm. they talk about the Pampas to the north. Yeah. So, you know, there's somewhere like maybe in Argentina or what geographically would have been Argentina at, mm-hmm. at any rate. So here we have this kind of, in, in some ways, this is a very kind of a D&D world. But it's also a far future world where we have all of this, like, you know, ancient technology, which may or may not be used in, in, in different ways. If you were to try to run a game that was trying to emulate this kind of vibe, would you just go with like kind of your traditional kind of D&D style game or nave or something and just throw in some elements of futuristic stuff? Or would you want to go for a game that's more designed for this kind of far, far future world like Numenera or Numenera is definitely one that came to mind for me, but I think you could do it in a lot of systems, partially because I think it would depend what kind of story you wanted to tell. Like, Mm -hmm. do you want to be some, someone real protagonisty like Severian with, with a a dramatic exile and a, a special fancy sword and a dangerous MacGuffin cult item in his pocket by accident? Or do you want to do one of the many other things that's certainly happening in this city? 
There's all kinds of things implied. We don't even learn about what the witches are. They even go like, oh, we don't have time to talk about the witches. Even though they're like the sister guild. Right, right. Like, I want to know what the witches are. Let's go invent that. All right. Oh, and the, we don't, we don't want to go to the Tower of Healing because they don't really like us and they might do something bad to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a fact. There were so many little lines. I love the, the first section of the book. I love the many, like, cultural political layers going on there of this, like, young man gradually realizing that he exists in a very specific cultural and political location in his society and growing out of that childhood oh the way like my family and my community is is just the nature of the world into understanding that he has a distinct culture and upbringing um that part i really liked and also thought a lot about his and i was nerding out at some points like oh what is their education structure like he talks a little bit at one point about how the education structure is that the very small kids have no official work and the amount of work given to children in the torturers guild grows as you age based on your capacity for your age and the earliest tasks are small tasks that are fun to you because they feel like a cool responsibility you're being trusted with like to bring a letter to someone when you're yeah. like six and i'm like you know if they weren't training them to be torturers <laughs> right. this is not a bad way to this is a child development aware on a certain for a certain <laughs> definition of that in this weird grim dark far future for a certain definition of that this is a developmentally aware approach to child rearing where you're not adding more structure to children's lives than you need to help them be a part of community but you are giving them the support of learning to play active important roles in their community as they age based on their skill and comfort. Then there's all the other stuff that sucks. It's still also kind of British boarding schooly, where it's a bunch of young boys raised independent from their family who beat the crap out of each other to maintain their social hierarchy um, because yeah. they are given strong social hierarchies over each other based on age. There's that whole section where like Severian becomes like the, the dirt, the whatever the status is where he's in charge of the younger boys. And the first thing he does is like beat the crap out of them to establish that right. he's not to be messed with. Right. Um, yeah. And there was a so, talk of like the townies, right? Because when they first go swimming, there's the townies on the river, and they like they kind of try yeah. to steal their spot and, and that. Mm -hmm. The little, yeah, the little the little tensions of childhood. So that's the thing, you know. I feel like you could use a bunch of different game systems to play something in this world, and it would depend. Like, do you want to play a game a game where you're a bunch of teenagers in one of these weird secret guilds, or do you want to play like adventurers? And this is a city you happen to visit. Do you want to? Like, there's so many things in the city. And also, if you're running a game or facilitating, like, something GM-less together, it literally says the city can't be perfectly mapped and censused. So you can drop whatever in there if you really right. want to, like, invent a guild. Oh, yeah. You know, pull, pull they mentioned there. there are, like, hundreds of guilds, I think. So. Yeah. So really, like, you know, I think you could do uh, some great games of, like, uh, you know, I'm sorry, did you say street magic? and just build districts in the city. <laughs> you know, I think there's a bunch of ways you could do this. And uh, But if I was going to do it, something that was plot-like, a bit like Severian's story, I would probably do Numenera or something similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, And build some more protagonist-y characters with skills who interact a little bit with dangerous and ancient materials that they maybe don't totally understand. Mm -hmm. I think you could also do a really interesting campaign based about uh, you know, Agilis and Agia types, the swindler types. Yeah, you know, totally. You know, who just like try to get people across. So that they're, they're geographically not roving, but people mm -hmm. are coming to them and they're just trying to what, what yeah. kind of You could totally do around. some Blades in the Dark style stuff, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, and have like different interests and groups uh, within the city. There's also um, a th one of the specific pieces of media that I got reminded of while I was reading this book initially. I actually went and like 
poked my parents about it so I could look at some of their comics. Um, because one of the comics that they had that I read growing up, though probably I read it when it was a little, I was a little too young for it because it was kind of gruesome, was Thieves World. Sure. The Thieves mm. World graphic novels, sure, yeah, um, which I then found out when I researched them more, are also a whole book series, and those were like a collaborative world building project yeah. by a bunch of fantasy writers, some of which y'all have featured the books of on this show already. I realized when I looked into it, and I believe there also is a Thieves World RPG mm-hmm. because yep. a lot of the tonality of Thieves World, and also the sense that it was a big, interesting, sprawling, complex city full of, you know, fickle characters with varied motives and some supernatural forces. All of that meshed very well with this setting. And so I think you could probably use something along the lines of the Thieves World RPG for that tonality and structural vibe, too. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So if you were going to go and steal some stuff from this book for Knave, what kind of stuff would you like to steal to throw into your Knave game? Uh, Definitely the wild combat uh, grounds where people are fighting each other with weird deadly plants and other things (laughs) that for sure um the beastmasters guild which gets briefly mentioned um that sounds amazing i i super want to pull in some stuff from that that seems both a place where your knave characters could be from there or they could have to deal with beastmasters as a challenge um i think any of those would apply (laughs) um and things i think that would be great uh, the fact that sometimes people just do weird, daring, like, cart races through the streets <laughs> right, right. <laughs> as a joyride. I think there's lots of senses of the kinds of interesting chaos that can happen to you in a large city that would serve Nave very well. Lots of things to, like, throw into the path of the players and see what they do with it. Oh, the weird cult temple that moves around and is kind right. of a giant tent right. happens to be set up here. Oh, like, two cart races are going by you super fast. Oh, you're trying to seek out a weird book bound in kraken skin from the depths of the library like there's so many <laughs> there's so many pieces like that right you know and you just run into somebody like no 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 no, i'm not gonna have anything to do with them and then you run into the exact same person again you know at the very end and you join yeah. their play <laughs> exactly i love that i love the <laughs> i love the sense too that like the traveling theater dudes don't seem inherently supernatural but they manage to feel a little supernatural in a very folkloric way mm-hmm. like this man who's sort of a giant and this man who's sort of a fox yeah. And they travel together and they can make women magically beautiful, you know, and but they're also like weird scrappy performers who have to pause the show and go, no, come on, you didn't tip enough. Like, you want to see the conclusion, <laughs> tip more. <laughs> and now, come on, come on, crew, let's check what people dropped when they left the show. Maybe we'll right, get right. some we, fruit. We found a, you know, a chicken. We found a whole They said pork, they found you know, a baby a pig whole, once. A baby pig that. once. Yeah. And a baby baby, they also mentioned, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we found a baby pig. One time we found a baby baby. <laughs> they don't say and what they did about that. They don't say, you know, they, they ate the pig and they don't say what they did with the baby baby. No, yeah, they, they don't did. say what they did with either of the babies. <laughs> I love those. I love those dudes. Those are some, like, my favorite characters i was wondering if they would reappear again or not and when they loop back i'm like yeah yeah i was excited to see them again too yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and hoy what 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 would you want to steal from this i mean what not to steal right um there's so much you know a big city guy i'm big city kid so anything with city adventures i just love you know just you know going to the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time doing something goofy and it's like literally one block over it's like oh i've never gone down that block oh this thing happens on that block Mm -hmm. um like the guilds, obviously the structure of the guilds. Um, mm-hmm. I like that as infinite as the city is, though, there's still something out there. There's this, uh, you know, wasteland to the south. There's this war with 
who knows what's in the north? We're not yep, exactly there's sure. There's roads that you're not supposed to travel on or like right. the government will kill you because they don't yes. actually like travel that much. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, and, you know, um, and it's just the, the interesting dynamics of I love that scene. Like, you know, the the commander really thinks he did a good job with the um, with the execution and decides to hand him the silver. He goes, no, 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 no. Throw it on the ground because it'll really uh, we don't mess want with your reputation. That, yeah, yeah, all these little your... details. <laughs> I love uh, uh, still, I loved the creepy gawkers to the executions and that the plot <laughs> the involved five, that sure. culturally, that there's like uncomfortable fans. <laughs> They're like, here, like, here's a handkerchief, like, get as much blood on it as possible and I'll tip you later. Right, right. And there's a guy who's the, the sailor who's kind of implied that he had like a, basically a real doll that someone yes. stole. He like won't stole. stop talking about his, his sex doll. That got stolen from, that was implied that was stolen from him by his, his fellow yeah. sailors and now he wants his execution to go find the, <laughs> find yep. the Yeah, people with their wild vendettas and and their personal things. I also love the time where he's like eating with the soldiers after he's woken up and the soldiers don't know he's the Carnifex that was brought in last night right. and are like talking to him abstractly about his profession, but they don't yeah. know it's him. Uh, <laughs> they don't know like he's the exact person um, yeah. that came in the other night. <laughs> also yeah. speaking of crowds, there's this one passage that I loved where it says a crowd is not the sum of the individuals who compose it. Rather, it is a species of animal without language or real consciousness Born when they gather, dying when they depart. I highlighted that too. <laughs> I thought that was so cool. I love yeah. that. It made me think literally about game mechanics too, because there oh. are game systems where like creatures or people can act as a mob or as a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is like, they are literally structurally, mechanically a certain kind of animal that exists when the group exists. Right. So meta narratively, I, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, if the one thing I would not steal from this book is uh, the way that Severian talks about women's breasts. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, for, for one thing, like obviously it's not respectful. No. But B, even if we were trying to write some like sexy stuff here, yeah. this is not sexy. Right. No, like, it's an awkward teenage boy <laughs> raised to like ritualistically torture people, meeting women for the first time and not knowing what to do with himself. Right. Um, I wonder if that's sort of like um uh, since we've talked about so many like weird, uh, you know, melon or whatever shaped breasts mm-hmm. in there, or reading of our social, uh, you know, sword and sorcery for this project, I wonder if that's actually a Gene Wolfe sort of meta commentary on this kind of thing. I wonder if it is because he he's not. It's not as bad as many other texts are. Right. Like I'm willing to give him some leeway, especially because this does seem like it would be how a teenager. <laughs> Would, yeah. <laughs> would reflect on it. He doesn't have a dr- very dramatic amount of language for it, but he certainly notices if boobs are around. Right. Um, and things. But, you know, like if I was a P, if, if I'm treating the second half of this game like when the PCs have started actually playing, um, if the GM told me, like, oh, yeah, you're like, if you do this move, like you can do it, but like your dress is going to rip and a boob's going to pop out, I'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> 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 I'm not playing with you again. <laughs> No, no. Um, yeah, that, I mean that would definitely be ju- juvenile in that regard. But again, I think yeah. I think Gene Wolfe is. Um, I mean, Jeff was kind of gave me the crooked eyebrow when I mentioned that whether it was a meta commentary. But I think Gene Wolfe is so um, kind of smart about other things that it seems to me that he would be in a position to make a comment about that. You know, so that's, that's maybe. That's, I mean, he, he does say creamy amplitude at one point though, so I'm not going to give him like too much leeway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Though at least he is saying, like, it looks like her back hurts, like, is the other yeah. part of that sentence. <laughs> um, so again, like, I'm glad of that, at least. Right, right. The one he time he mentions a woman having large breasts, he's like, it looks like her back hurts. <laughs> like, it probably does. <laughs> thank you for that, at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for suggesting that, like, women's do women do have bodies that, like, 
ache and have annoyances sometimes. Like I, I'm forgetting her name. Like it's not, it's not Jocasta. Is it like the Jocanta. the waitress who becomes super hot because yeah. she joins the theater troupe and unspecified magic slash makeup arts are done to her. <laughs> she gets described a bit, but also like she has headaches and her back hurts and she's hungry right. and like she's done for the day. And I'm like, that's good. Okay. Like I'm I'm glad she's hot and cranky. Right. Um, <laughs> not like, like hot shit. and pristine. She had to um, pay for her own croissant, you know, by the, when she's originally the waitress, like, it's like, yeah. oh, you're going to, like, no, you got to mm-hmm. pay for that yourself. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I love the, it's, he's a fat, the, the theater dude is a fascinating kind of con artist in that he does seem to sort of do right by his troupe, but is also doing sort of a forced teaming mechanic where he's like, you're with me now and now our needs are tied together. And so I'm going to make you sacrifice luxuries because I don't want those to come out of our budget. <laughs> um, because now it's our budget. It's more money than you used to have, but I'm still making you think about it in a group way, and you didn't used to have to do that. Um, As producers do. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> One thing I think that's really fun about this book, though, is how he takes things that aren't scary and like makes them scary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, so you have been challenged to a duel to the death, so you need to pick a flower at the botanical garden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's and a really like, fucked up botanical garden. Just you wait. <laughs> and it's a scary flower. <laughs> but like but like legitimately like it is a fucked up botanical garden yeah. and oh, yeah. it's a scary flower. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> but also it's a scary flower in like interesting logistical ways where he's like, "Oh god, how do I even reach Oh, how do we carry this without like killing everyone on the boat?" Like, yeah. I like also cut down a small tree and now I'm awkwardly carrying this flower on the top. Of a sapling. (laughs) So I don't murder everyone else in this boat by bumping into the flower when the boat moves. (laughs) I kind of love that. Right, right. That's like, you know, encumbrance rules, like, you know, well used. (laughs) But now I definitely want to see a a good table of like 100 bizarre guilds. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I would totally build that with folks. That sounds like a great like group brainstorm to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> just like make a massive bizarre guild table right and what would be even better is if the name does not immediately tell you what that guild does you oh know. yeah a little loose and interpretive right mm-hmm. you because know, uh-huh. it, it is that's how that vibe of the byzantine empire like it was like mm-hmm. officials in the byzantine empire who their job was like their title might have been like i don't know making one up uh master of soap but it turns out that that person is like the number one counselor because they're the one who actually gets to be have access to the emperor's body and like soap them down or something like yeah, that. Right? You know, yeah, you know, or it could just be like it relates to some like building or concert. It's like, you know, it's like the order of the silver tower. Well, what's in the silver tower? Like, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, like you can you can make it pretty abstract. Yeah. And the order of the silver tower might sound really fancy, but actually the silver tower is just like a real like shithole right. yeah maybe it's just the <laughs> welders guild right. you know like they're like, but they're not glamorous all right or maybe they're just the people who change the it's, the, it's uh, actually just a word for pepper shaker and they're the ones who just change the pepper and the salt at the restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah i love like good interpretive stuff like that yeah. i also just i love a good random table like random tables are my jam. Maybe the silver tower is just like a nursing home. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so if you work for the order of the the silver tower, you're just like taking care of old folks. That actually reminds me of um one of the times that I've played. I'm sorry, did you say street magic? One of the things that we created during that game session was a retirement home that primarily serves retired members of a monster hunting order. Amazing. And so, like, they don't fight anymore, but they're often still, like, consulted by younger monster hunters. And a small number of, like, the care team staff are also magic users because that helps. 
because you've got some people who don't just have age-based health problems. They, like, you know, were turned to stone a couple times in their youth, and that is, like, not great for your joints over And you time. also have to have people who are trained to deal with them, like, especially when they get to, like, if they're having, like, dementia, yeah. and now they're confused, and they think the people who work there are monsters, you yeah, have to know how you know, to, to or deal like with that. Yeah, you know, or, like, they're reliving their old battle days, or, like, they have several curses on them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know so you can totally i can totally picture that kind of thing in this setting in this setting too good stuff yeah any any other big takeaways i want to get just a smidge more gender in here just yeah. because i feel like a big part of the flow of this book is that your narrator is this young man who grew up mm-hmm. in a society entirely of men yeah um and things who then meets a bunch of significant women um mm-hmm. in the plot relatively speaking he doesn't meet that many people on the whole but <laughs> yeah uh, but several of them are women who are like very significant in the plot. But there's multiple times where he or other characters will muse on like the difficulties of men and women connecting with each other or how there's like some inherent adversarial energy to that relationship. And he at one point compares like the relationship that the Torturers Guild has with its clients to the relationship that like the Beastmasters have with wild animals. And he says that like all guilds have a relationship like that and then folds that into saying that that's also how men and women relate, that people like love things that they also destroy. <laughs> um, and I'm like, that's, that's certainly a take um, yeah. that reflects some things that are culturally true in your setting for sure and somewhat in other settings. And I could see you porting that into our world, but it's also kind of a wild way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's things. interesting also that the first woman that he really significantly, um, who is the client, what's the name of her? Tercha? Um, the uh, Thecla. Thecla. Thecla, yeah, the Shadowlin Thecla. She, so Thecla. she's an, an exultant, right? So it's kind of implied that the exultants are also not quite the same, literally, species. Or, they got or some at other least like gene. some very distinct group. It made me think a little bit of Brave New World, right. where like, like the class stratification also involved yeah. gene modding so that higher status people are always also taller. Right. I mean, so that's not a gender issue per se, but, but because one of the first women that he has any mm-hmm. experience with is so different. Like, they're literally a different species, almost. Yeah. Right? And so that that was a f- kind of fascinating in my mind. He's got so much just protagonisty stuff going on. Because there's also the whole thing where, like, if you're in the Torturer's Guild, you don't know your parents because you can only become a torturer by being a child of under a certain age and stature who was the child left behind from someone who was tortured to death. Um, and if you're young enough, they adopt you into the guild. And so he speculates repeatedly and like other people comment on the fact that he looks kind of high class, mm-hmm. but he has yeah, no which, way of distinctly knowing that. Um, yeah. At least I at feel this like point that's in pretty the book. clearly foreshadowing some. Oh, future I'm stuff. sure. Like, Almost whether yeah. or not he literally is that like that's going to continue to be relevant, whether it means that he's literally part of an exultant bloodline or if someone's going to claim him to be or he's going to push that narratively in some way right or yeah. use that For to justify wherever he comes whatever position he ends up in yeah at a certain point and yep. again this book is so much about sort of him discovering or inventing himself which totally. is really pretty fascinating because a lot of times you when you read sword and sorcery or fantasy fiction the characters are almost iconic and fully formed and he's not mm-hmm. that yet He's just, yeah. he's, we don't know what he is really at this point yet. It's kind of fun to get to meet the protagonist as an awkward team. <laughs> so, Moss, do you have any final thoughts about The Shadow of the Torturer before we wrap this up? I'm going to try to read the rest of the series, though I'm sure it'll take me a while because I am genuinely curious to see where it goes. You know, it's not a perfect book, but nothing is. Um, it's a rich text. It's yeah. got a lot going on. 
and the things that are frustrating about about it are not wildly frustrating and are often mellower than similar tropes that I've seen used worse in other places. <laughs> so props to Gene Wolf. I had a really good go. time with it, and I feel like just a city like this is just a really tasty thing to offer a gaming group. Yeah. It's just big and wild and chaotic, and it has structure, but not so much structure that you will get super stuck if there's a thing you really want to make happen. Um but I feel like you could you could play in this space and be just on one street, or you could try to play in this world broadly, and you could have a really good time. The one other thing that occurred to me was um, the, the mysterious North that we don't quite know about and the war and things. I'm betting we'll learn more about that in future books. But with working from just this book as a base text, I feel like you could also take the mysterious North and the war and the dangerous tra- the dangerous roads you shouldn't travel on and things. You could probably do some pretty good Iron Sworn or a similar mm-hmm. adaptation in a space like that and do more like small or tense enclaves mm-hmm. of people dealing with dealing with conflict. I feel like it's implied that there's parts of the world that are not so cityish. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could do what's that one that's the um, play out with that too. The Blades in the Dark one that's where you're the mercenary company. Oh, um, uh-huh. Right, right. Something similar to that. Yes. So Moss, do you have any projects that you're currently working on or about to release that you want people to know about? Let's see, I don't have any uh, big new releases coming up that I have planned right now, but one of my most recent releases uh, that I'm proud of, I've done, a lot of my stuff is just full-fledged little games that just I made and you can play, but lately I've been trying to do more stuff that's like playbooks or adventures for other systems, and I've been having a blast with that. So for two very totally different things that represent different parts of the kind of stuff I do, um... I made three playbooks for a game system called The Girlfriend of My Girlfriend is My Friend. So if you want to do some really kind of like potentially cozy, socially intimate storytelling about like queer and trans and potentially also polyamorous social and romantic circles, uh, I made playbooks about being like the mom friend or the friend who's exhausted from their corporate job or the like kind of crunchy (laughs) outdoorsy friend. And those are all drawn from both things about me and things about friends of mine. And I had a blast designing those. I'd love if more people looked at that at the source game. And then the other thing that I would love um, if people looked at is I'm a huge fan of the game system Heroic Chord, which frankly also it would, I don't think you could play Shadow of the Torture in it directly, but you could, you can do some fun post-apocalypse in that because it is a sort of slightly hopeful post-apocalypse game with a really cool magic system. And I wrote um, an uh, adventure for that system where you are exploring weird sea caves, but it also just gives you a fun description of a town that you could use for a chill interim or like beach episode for your party in almost any game system. It's got uh, stat setups for playing it in heroic chord, but there's NPCs and location descriptions and a map of the sea cave full of neat little weird encounters and sites that you could use for pretty much any kind of adventure system where your party might want to do a little dungeoneering. Very so cool. those are some this, of the things I would love people to look at the most. And right this now. is on your HIO page? All on my HIO. Okay, so that's Beating the Binary. On, beating the HIO. Binary, okay. yes. And where else can people find you on social media? I'm, I'm or... Beating the Binary as well on TikTok. That's one of the other places I'm the most active. I partially talk there about just how weird and full of gender messages home decor uh, and like just home home and household design products can be. Uh if you search the, the tag CISCORE, C-I-S-C-O-R-E, <laughs> most of that tag is me. Um, and I also have started a series recently called How to Play This TikTok as an RPG, where I take TikToks with fun, fun tonal energies and premises, and I tell you about uh, an indie RPG you might not have heard of 
that I think embodies the tone of that TikTok. And if you want to just follow my general more social ramblings or like connect with me about game design, uh, best way to do that is on my Twitter, which is Adonarama. That's spelled A-D-A-N-A-R-A-M-A. It's the one social media I made so long ago that I haven't aligned it with my main internet username. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. There you go. Um, And I do make a podcast too. It is on unofficial hiatus right now because I started making it when I had a part-time job and now I have a full-time after school program management job and I'm being eaten alive a little bit, but it will be back because Angela and I love go. making it. We, so. we all know about having our hair on fire. Yes. Think of it as a perk. You can go through the episode backlog and it won't keep multiplying while you enjoy catching up. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Uh, Jeff, uh, you want to mention our Patreon and I'll mention where people can find us. Absolutely. So you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. Do you listen to the show all the time? Would you like to show us some support? Well, now you know where you can go to do it. Uh, Prior to our episodes, we record um, a patron book club. And this week we were joined by Dan Alexander, Jeremy Harper, uh, Demo Saklas, Rick Byrne, and Adam Styers. So thank you all for joining us this week. I would also like to send a shout out to a few of our other patrons, all randomly drawn from the hat. This week, those random patrons that we would like to uh, say thank you to are Michael Ben, Eric Johnson, Eric Hallstrom, Joseph Hoopman, Vixter, Robbie Fioto, Eric Biritz, and Robert Coleman. Thank you so much for your support. Now, I also want to let y'all know that the our patrons also get to vote on which books we are covering. And most recently, the votes are in for episode 114. That's going to be covering Tim Powers' Declare. So that should be a fun and interesting read. Now, Hoy, you have our nominations for episode 118. Is that correct? I do. I'm going to do something very unfair, and I'm going to pit some books by some of our previous guests against each other. Ooh. So uh, this week, what's well, so the theme is Appendix and Friends. First book is Angeline Adams and Remco Van Stratton's The Red Man and Others. Second book is Peter Biebergall's anthology Appendix N, The Eldritch Origins of Dungeons and Dragons. Third book is Howard Andrew Jones's The Desert of Souls. He's also the editor of uh, the Goodman Games pulp uh, Tales from the Skull, uh, Sorcerer's Skull. And then we have uh, Jeanette, Jeanette Ng's Under the Pendulum Sun, which I believe won a World Fantasy Award. Is that right, Jeff? I believe so, yeah. All right, so there you go. Uh, that so, is really exciting. Those are all books written by former guests of our right, show. So fight. <laughs> <laughs> fight, fight, fight. <laughs> That'll be really fun. Or in the case of Peter Biebergall's, um, written or edited by yeah, former guests of our show. But awesome. That sounds really fun. If you want to drop us uh, some more feedback, just uh, send us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at appendix, appendix, N, appendix underscore n. Awesome. And Moss, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you again so much for having me. This was a blast. I'm also really excited that there's some Earthsea in your future, too. I'll certainly be checking that episode out. Heck yeah. Thank you, Moss. It was an honor and a pleasure. Feelings mutual. All right, everybody. See you in the sacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>